0: On today's episode of The Journey of Science, we sit down with Dr. Tu Yavu. Dr. Vu is currently an assistant professor of neuroscience at the University of New Mexico Health Science Center and Comprehensive Cancer Center. His lab studies the development of glial cells, like astrocytes and oligodendrocyte precursor cells, to understand mechanisms that transform these cells into glioblastomas, one of the most aggressive brain tumors. Tu is an American Hmong neuroscientist. He shares with us his journey that begins as a young boy in Laos, moving with his family to Fresno, California, where he first developed a passion for science. In this episode, we talk about the importance of resourcefulness as a key tenet for success in science, and how that impacts the cultural perception of a scientist as a profession. Welcome everyone to The Journey of Science.
1: Uh, my name is Tu Vu. I am now currently an assistant professor in neuroscience in the Department of Neuroscience at uh, the University of New Mexico Health Science Center. I'm also a member of the uh, UNM Comprehensive Cancer Center. Uh, so it's a great combination of both neuroscience and cancer research. My lab is really using mice, transgenic mice, to really study mechanisms of how glial cells develop in the brain and then trying to understand how these cells migrate and differentiate over time, you know, including like oligodendrocyte precursor cells, astrocytes. And then also looking at, you know, when there are mutations that happen, how these cells are then transformed into glioblastoma or gliomas, which are brain tumors that are really deadly. So that's what my lab has been doing. We use mostly mice to do mostly mouse models in order to do this. And so uh, that's the gist of.
0: So how long have you been at the University of New Mexico?
1: I started it I as, as for you, I was at UT Southwestern Medical Dallas, UT Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, Texas with you. Uh and so then after twenty seventeen I transitioned to this position and I've been here for five years now uh, in mm-hmm. the
2: department. So how long was your postdoc there in UT Dallas? it's, autistic, it's like. Interesting,
1: yeah. It feels like a little bit ago or a while only, but it's been a while. I I was a postdoc. I think I came at the fall of twenty ten. Oh wow! And so I was at UT Southwestern for a total of seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were, you know, really great years. I really enjoyed being a postdoc. I think it was one of the best times because most of the time you just have to focus on your research and really, you know, try and develop your research and then hopefully build a story. And mm-hmm. take into your own lap. You didn't have to worry about schools and study for tests. So postdoc was a great time, but it did it took a while for me.
2: Oh, I wish uh, I had the same perspective right now because now that I'm <laughs> doing a postdoc, I'm like, it's driving me crazy. <laughs> it's always
0: in retrospect, right? It's, right. It's Visions 2020. So let's go way back. How did you get in? What was your uh, how would you get into science? Like, yeah. what was the interest at be- the beginning? So well, let's let's for the listeners. Um where are you from and, and and how did you get into academia so let's yeah. start from the beginning
1: so you know if you really want to go back to to everything i <laughs> i was actually born in, in laos you know i was born in laos in southeast asia i think i was probably around eight or nine years old when we immigrated to the u.s and mom people we came to this country because of the Vietnam War where, mm-hmm. where the people of the highlands in Laos. And so you know the United States recruited the Central Intelligence Agency, recruited Hmong people to to be involved in the Vietnam War, essentially to intercept the Ho Chi Minh Trail,
3: yeah. uh,
1: which is the main trail that, you know, that they transport uh, ammunition and tanks from North Vietnam to South Vietnam. So Hmong people play a huge role in that. My parents, uh, my father is actually one of the soldiers during that mm-hmm. time. And so after the United States pulled out, a lot of Hmong people were persecuted because of our role in the war. Uh, that's essentially uh, what my family story, the majority of Hmong people's story is. And then just to f- move a little faster into the 80s. So we didn't really move to the US right after the war, but we came in 1989 when it became apparent that we couldn't live the way that we wanted to anymore in Laos. And so then We eventually immigrated as refugees, uh, walked through the jungle for two weeks to Thailand. And then we stayed as refugees in Thailand, the camp for, I think, six months, a little Mm -hmm. bit more than six months, almost a year. And then we immigrated.
0: How old were you when that that was, you said eight?
1: Seven or eight when we were moving, you know, from Laos to Thailand, in Thailand. And so Mm -hmm. I was there for, we're there for, I think, I don't remember, maybe a year or a little bit more. And then eventually we were able to get permission to settle in the United States. We had, you know, families who were already here sponsor us. And so my family settled in Fresno, California in 1989, in the summer of 1989. And so I, even though I was a little bit old, my father actually, because he knew that, you know, in, in this country, they they put you in the grades based in your age, not necessarily your levels of, you know, education and understanding. And so knowing that, you know, we didn't speak any English or anything like that at all, he cut my age by about a year and a half. And so I started third grade rather than fifth grade, you know, so that helped a little bit. So I started third grade uh, in this country. So I grew up in Fresno and went to school there, high school there. Mm -hmm. And so then uh, after graduating from high school, I decided to go to the University of California, Davis
3: um, Mm
1: -hmm. uh, for undergrad in 1999. That's a while ago, uh, about 1989. And I was there for, for four years. And during that time, I was exposed to, I think for the first time, neurobiology. You know, I think taking one of those classes where they do the ocular dominance experiment and right. they were talking about how, you know, plastic the brain was. And I was just thinking about my own situation where, you know, I was a little younger and I speak English for the most part fluent. Well, my brother, who's like a couple of years older, he would have an accent, you know, that sort of thing, just to understand how that brain, you know, just
3: mm-hmm.
1: a certain period of time could, could allow somebody to learn something or the brain could be so malleable and how interesting it is. And so that was my really first exposure to neuroscience mm-hmm. uh, to really uh, delve more into it. So I decided to graduate with a degree in neurobiology. Uh, and then after that, I like you know immigrants who want to go to med school but yeah yeah, it's it's one of those things but i was i i didn't have any money i i was already married i got married a little too young and Mm -hmm. already had a kid by the time i graduated and so i didn't have any money to pay for any of those mcat courses to take the mcat of course you Mm -hmm. know those kaplan courses so i decided to just study for the gre's and apply for graduate school instead and so you know Luckily, when I I took a year off to study for the GRE and worked at the same time to support, you know, my family at the time. And then, luckily, when I applied to graduate school to the University of Minnesota, uh, the graduate program in neuroscience at the University of Minnesota, they they accepted me. And so then I just went there and did okay. my PhD in neuroscience there. And then, well, just
0: that, that's a huge. I mean, how is that different from California, right? That's obviously a huge culture shock. I mean, I'm sure you you were getting a lot of experience with different cultures how was how was that transition? So
1: I actually had and one of the reasons why I went to Minnesota was because I had family that moved there already. Mm. you know I had two older brothers who went and lived in Minnesota, and I went to visit and I started looking at the graduate program and it was a really good graduate program and I do highly recommend it it's it's a great graduate program
0: it is especially when
1: yeah especially in neuroscience uh and so then i i i I look at the university and the fact that my brothers were there. there's a lot of huge home population there too, so it was really attractive. I mean the only thing I really had to get used to was the cold yeah you know? <laughs> it was the weather the weather was really cold uh but Minnesota as a whole was really great, and at the university it was really great, so the Twin Cities was pretty good at the time at graduate school, too. Mm-hmm. I think graduate school is a great time to just be exposed fully to neuroscience. Yeah. And and it's the first times where you go to a neuroscience conference to really understand the depth of research that are going on, the exciting stuff that people are doing. Yeah, and
3: okay. So it's
1: really graduate school that I was like, okay, maybe this is something that I could potentially do for a living. But it was never really the intention to try to you know, become a professor or anything like that. It was just part of paying, you know, Being a PhD, they pay you a salary, right? And so that, that helps a little bit to support your family, to, to pursue a job, to pursue a career. And so that was basically what my intention was going to graduate school, but, you know.
2: And why didn't you join industry? And industry gives you more money, right?
1: True, that is true. I, I did consider it, you know. I really did consider to to go into industry too. But then being a small person in in science in general is very rare, mm-hmm. you know, like I was... I was going to a bunch of conference and it's just felt so, so lonely and so sad that there's no Hmong people whatsoever. That's
2: true because that leads me to my other question. Like, I mean, like you were saying, these conferences and academy in general, I feel like it could be very classist place. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it 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 could be, you have to look the part, you have to talk in a certain way, you have to wear certain type of clothes to even consider to be an insider. And that's, that's that's there so with your experience how in how do you feel academia received you you know like were people kind to you because people can be nasty in these conferences
1: yeah I think for the most part I was pretty wide open to try to absorb and learn as much as I can interact with a lot of people you know and so for the most part I think I think the difference wasn't necessarily where I experienced anyone treating you different, but I think the fact that the culture is so different from what you used to,
3: mm. that's
1: definitely something that's different. You know, the way, like you said, the way the people talk, the way people, talk, yeah, the way yeah. people converse, uh, the way people interact socially, right? It's not anything that you do ever in your life growing up. Mm-hmm. So it was things that are completely different that it's something that I had to learn to get used to, to learn to carry conversations and talk about science, really talk about science and people. You know, that was the struggle of trying to grow into this world.
3: Mm-hmm. And then
1: the motivation to say, you know what, maybe I could try to see if I could be a part of this world too, mm-hmm. you know, and to hopefully be in some ways a role model to get Hmong students to, to, Hmong people in general, but also Southeast Asians in general too, because there's not many of us in mm-hmm. science and research. And so I guess to try to maybe be visible too you know, be Mm -hmm. visible and be a part of academia. And hopefully that will be a way to attract students to pursue this career path as well. And so that's partly one of the reasons why I didn't go into industry, you know, and and mostly I just applied for a postdoc position to see if I can get it right. And if I didn't get it, I was going to go to industry. But luckily I applied to Jane Johnson's lab at UT Southwestern, met her. and She was just such a great mentor, Mm. you know, such a great professor who really cared about the people that, worked in her lab and many of the people who worked in her lab has been able to transition on to become professors and other things too. And so then I'm just like, well, this is like, it seems like a good opportunity, you know, to pass up, to try to look for an industry position. Why not do this for a little bit more to see if it's doable, if it's something that you want to do before you give up this road. And so the door just opened and I just walked to it to try to continue to do it.
2: I can relate to it because I come from India so when you know when you grow up there you see all these scientists but then the idea of scientists is just so far out there and it's sometimes it's like a magical creature you know and so when I tell my parents like okay fine I'm doing my PhD this is what I'm going to do it's like beyond comprehension for them they don't they don't understand even now when I start when I tell them uh, I study epilepsy and Alzheimer's they they don't understand and i can't i can't blame them because they come from a different world so i have to be very patient in explaining things so this is what i do this is the scope of doing you know it's like uh it's like how i feel like the west world perceives science and the eastern world perceive science it's a complete different thing at least in the modern times of course
0: hmm. well, can you expand i'm i'm very curious what does that mean
2: like i mean for it it's a for ex i mean in, in in an indian context right it's uh one point three billion people there so and um the research institutes that are well funded only there are few there are only few institutes there so to get into those institutes of course you there's only certain seats and there's a lot of competition too so only a very handful number of people get into those institutes and since they get into these institutes, they they would think like they are, you know, it's like holier than thou attitude, right? Mm. And uh, it's this idea of scientist is just so unreachable to working class or middle class people over there, you know? It's like scientists, what do they do? Doctors, yes, they understand because they go to hospitals and everything. So they respect that profession a lot. But then with scientists, it's like a magical entity that you only see in Hollywood movies. Mm. So even when I told my family that I decided to do a PhD, the first question was, will will that pay you enough? Like, what do, you know, like, is that financially viable? There are so many things that a different community just don't understand or get it. And another thing, like in these conferences, Uh, when I was in India I never used to drink alcohol my first can of beer it was when I joined my PhD in Japan and one can was enough to get me drunk and I was so surprised to see in these conferences where I and people were discussing science and everything then I was thinking oh so this is how people like it was a new language for me you know Mm. it's like it, I I had to learn to be included in that circle you know what I mean even if that means have a sip of wine even if I'm not used to you know it's like reconditioning myself to be included
1: what you mean about you know being a, a different world like yeah. you know like you said we don't have to we don't have to think about all these things like i think like most people that i know like especially my caucasian friends or american friends who grew up here was more wealthy you know they they're just really passionate about science that's why they go into it you know and so they find it very easy to talk about it because that's the only thing they think they don't have to worry about money they don't have to worry about feeding their parents their you know and all of these other things you know whether they're going to have enough money to pay for anything that they need and so i completely understand that we you know for for me even you know like doing this i get the same thing from my parents are you going to make enough money to raise your four kids now i have four kids too are you going to be making enough money to raise your kids? Are you going to be able to do what you need to do, pay for a house, you know, do all of these other things? And then, you know, there are so many other things that you got to think about besides just the science, you know, you got to really juggle that. So I think I completely understand where you're coming from there in terms of, you know, going to science. It's, it's not just science. We have to think so much more.
2: So, my God, is it my as-
1: level?
0: So to as a PI now how has that influenced the way that now, I mean as a PI you're essentially it's almost like you're running another budget right if you're a family you're running the yeah. your family's budget you got to make sure you can pay the mortgage same thing as a PI you got to make sure you can pay salaries you got to get the overhead you got to you know materials and supplies you got mouse costs you've got cells and you know how has that influenced the way how do you think it's influenced the way i mean obviously you have one way to do it because that's the way you do it but you
1: know all the time all the way from like as far as i remember like personally just money wise financially was something that i always had to worry about
0: mm.
3: like
1: all the way from my you know growing up in this country all the way until i got this position i always had to worry about money whether there's enough money to put foot on the table to pay for car what if something happens So when I really had this job is when that financial burden, I mean, it doesn't pay a lot, but it pays you enough that you don't have to worry that, you know, if your car died yet, I could probably afford to buy a new car, right? You know, and if I need to do something, I could pay something for my kids, you know, these things, Mm -hmm. put them in a good house and a good school district, you know? And so those are the things that I didn't really have to think about at least, you know, these last couple of years that I'm here now. And so then once I have the other stuff to think about, like you say, in terms of budget, do I think about that? I think if it doesn't affect me that personally, you know, I'm not worried. I'm actually more excited about spending the money and playing with it to to make the most to get the most out of it. You know, like whether it's hiring people, you know, or try to be creative on how to buy things. And so that you could really stretch the amount of dollars that you get right now. And so those things I am not as worried about because the personal side is sort of, you know, at a very more balanced place than before. And so as a PI, I actually enjoy managing all of these things. I don't really do a micromanage. I just do it at a very large scale, you know, imagining what I want to spend money on and allocate money that way to to Mm -hmm. hopefully fund the research and fund pay for the people to work in the lab that I wanted to and so I actually enjoy that to some extent the, the liberty to actually have some money and yeah. use it how you want it to try to further your research and your ideas so yeah how
2: big is your lab what? sorry how big is your lab
1: it, my lab right now is consists of a graduate student okay and two research technicians Okay. I am trying to I I just recently got an RO one. It just started in April and so I'm trying. Yeah, thanks. It Congratulations. To, <laughs> yeah, awesome. It,
0: First R01, huh? yeah. awesome. First
1: RO one, huh? Yeah. RO one. It took a while, uh, but it, it went through and so now I'm trying to potentially hire one or two more people to join the lab. So hopefully that will work out.
0: Yeah, I I I can I think I can sympathize saying like it is somewhat fun um it's different right um science money is a lot different than real money uh but it i i as a postdoc what i realized and what i one of the things i learned was that if money is the solution to the problem that's an easy solution right mm-hmm. it's one of the easier solutions you just got to find the money and that to me was such a radical a mental shift because i I graduate school i was in a small lab i worked on an unfunded project so it was stretching everything it was like how do i reuse this how do i borrow from this how do i you know get what one experiment can i get five sets of data from mentality and then as a postdoc going to a different mentality where it's like we just need to solve this problem if throwing money at it solves the problem let's just find money and then that's the solution it's it's there is a liberty to it, right, and I see it as this shift between survival mode and growth mode, and creativity really flourishes in growth mode it's it's very suppressed in survival mode and and it and I think it's like it is one of the fun parts of the job, you know, trying to build an environment that flourishes in creativity, and so it's it's definitely something that's been a weird transition for me
2: for me um when I was doing PhD I I mean it was not a very rich lab per se so with all these mouse experiments like how you were saying I was we had to think a lot like you know like with one set of experiments you get the maximum data out of it and you just basically try to squeeze everything I must say that is helping me right now very much like that is So many people who, I don't know if they do a training in a very well-funded lab and you have everything that you have, people don't think as much, you know, like when you, I mean, Mm -hmm. when you, when, when you're, how do I say this? Resources are limited. You Mm -hmm. are forced to be innovative and Mm -hmm. that is helping quite much. I mean, that experience that I had when I was in my master's PhD phase, you know? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, you have to be resourceful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that was being resourceful is, as a scientist is absolutely one of the most important aspects. Um, but it is it is very uh, rewarding to know that y- you have an idea, and if the only thing standing in your way of fulfilling that idea is just getting it funded, mm-hmm. that that's a weight for me that's lifted off. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like, I'll just go, f- I'll, I mean, I may not have the money to do it right now, but now I have something to do in terms of the next step is go find the funds and getting the funds, knowing, it, having the confidence to say, now that I've got the funds, I can do the, do what I want to do. It's, it's very nice. Right. And I think that's, to me, that's one of the most fun aspects of, of science is, is having that. Liberty. That's the creativity expression for me it, it, as being able to do that.
2: I agree. And another thing I was surprised regarding the money is, I mean, I must say of all the, you know, uh, I studied in India, I studied in Japan, now I'm in US, in all these countries, the government that funds money, I mean, puts money for the research, is just so significantly high in America then compared to so many countries that I've been, it's just like one hour one, that's so much money for science. You know, it's just, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, okay, fine. With all these political craziness that's happening around us. I Now, I mean, I, when I was in Japan, I always wondered like, why do people go to America? Hmm. Like what what is so special about that country? There are so many other places that you can go do science. I mean, why do everyone want to go there? Well, then only after coming here, It's the science here is on a different level altogether. It's, it's so collaborative, which I haven't experienced before. I mean, only, only coming here, I realized the importance of money, of course, to have the, to do, to be able to do the experiments. And also, I mean, I see many scientists having money and not doing shit with it, you know, like Mm -hmm. they're just so bad at collaboration. It's also important to, be open-minded and collaborate and not to be stubborn about ideas, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, that's something that I'm learning now. So,
1: I don't even realize it. Most people who don't do research doesn't even realize it either, right? But an antibody costs hundreds of dollars. Yeah. (laughs) You know, simple things, just freezing a mouse brain to section. And if you really think about all the equipment involved, it costs a lot of money. And so that's why it's so hard for many countries to do it. Yeah. You know, and so I think the great thing is at least this country is putting a lot of uh, effort in research to try to increase the knowledge of you know whatever knowledge we want to gain. But the bad part is like R one grant, even though it's quite significant, it's much less than you think too. And to really, <laughs> to really do something with it, I mean, the R one budget, I think, hasn't increased since the '90s, right? Oh and it's still the same amount of budget but then the inflation and everything has increased by knows by how many percentage now like three four times of what things used to cost now right everything that you do and so it becomes even though you have an r1 like your new pi i think it's still really difficult to do your experiment by yourself with a yeah. budget right that's why you know i think it favors more for the people who are able to bigger institutions who are able to get multiple amount of r1s and who have more resources to really do high impact research and so yeah i think yeah hopefully they will consider increasing the budget for r01 so that it will catch up with inflation and catch up with the time a little bit to make it so that it's actually for for a new pi who can actually use it to really grow their lab the way that it's intended to
0: yeah so I know traditionally, right, an R01 was you hire a postdoc and that funds a postdoc for a few years. Uh, are you, did you say you're going to hire a postdoc with this or you, do you have other? I mean, you've, so the biggest issue, I, a lot of it is the budgeting the salary, right? You've got to support sometimes yourself, depending on the institution. You know, you're required to support so many, so much percentage of your effort. Um, and then you've got to pay somebody. I mean, you can't do it. Oftentimes mm. you gotta pay a graduate student, a research assistant, or optimally, if you really want to be successful with this project, you know, somebody skilled like a postdoc. So what what is your strategy with this new R01? And,
1: I mean, I'm I'm trying so getting I'm focused a little bit on graduate students mm-hmm. because graduate students, there's other funding mechanisms that you could apply to to, to pay for their salary. Right like, because they qualify for especially Cancer Center or you know uh, the h s c here you could apply for a little bit here to cover one, two years, right, and so little things like that help uh, i am if I am unable to get a graduate student because we're an umbrella program, and you know sometimes the students are not interested in your lab, and so if they don't rotate in and they don't join, you can't really get it and so then I might try to look for a postdoc, but right now, as you both are probably aware it's really hard to attract postdocs because they'd rather go into industry now. And so it's a challenge. It's especially challenges for smaller institutions like the University of New Mexico here. And so we may have to consider going maybe the international route too. I'm probably going we'll to look at that route too to get you know, international postdocs from. But
2: you know. do you guys think like in a matter of a year or two, the industry positions will be saturated and they would come back to academy again? Well, that's a good question.
0: I think um, I, I think there's going to be some uh, balance of it, right? I think there will be people that realize there's a lot of benefits to industry. Um, there's a lot of negative things about, there's a lot of bad things about industry, job security.
2: Yeah. And I think
0: it'll depend on the individual. You know, if you're high risk, high reward, uh, personality type, you may want that right if you want a more secure stable flexible position you know academia may well, hopefully will always be able to offer that uh so mm.
2: but then i mean what continuing what you guys were saying about the grants and everything it's like this i think this changes in the salary and everything it should come from the policy makers you know what i mean like individual lab the every lab works differently. Like every lab has different priorities too. So I think it is the policymakers like you were, how you we were saying the funding hasn't been increased since nineties, right. Even the ro one I mean, you know, it has to come, it, I think it should be top down than bottom up. With, yeah.
0: But I, the, the roadblock that we're going to probably feel is that, You know the NIH has a finite budget. You know they always push to grow that budget in every year, Mm. but each institute will have X amount of dollars to support their grant programs. And what they're probably justifying now is saying we may not be able to support more money per grant, but we can support more grants. And there's still some benefit to that, right? To say we can give out 25 grants at this cost versus increasing the cost of the grant, but only giving out 10. I mean, either way, we're going to feel that, right? Either you don't get, I mean, in some level, a little money is better than no money, right? So there's that double-edged sword right there. And so you're going to still, basically that pay line is going to get smaller and smaller if they increase the the value of that grant, unless something significant from Congress gets passed to improve that that overall um nih budget
2: it should because many diseases like alzheimer's and everything even cancer it's 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 bipartisan it doesn't (laughs) affect you looking at your political leaning you know it doesn't affect you if you're democratic or republic or if you're from this country or that country everyone gets it so you know what i mean we need money to research oh my god this is going too seriously we need to lighten (laughs) this up this is going too seriously. (laughs) too it it yeah. um, so, i want to ask you this so when when you're doing your postdoc in here what are the experiments that didn't work or what are the blunders that you did hmm. and now you think it's like oh i shouldn't have done that oh that's stupid you know
1: it's not so much about the experiments work or they work. one way or another they work whether they turn out the way that you wanted to was a completely different thing right i think that's the thing that i had to deal with more than it not being not working so for example like I was I spent a long time to develop a mouse brain tumor model right Mm -hmm. and so you know like knowing what I know that I didn't know anything then so I was just trying to induce a tumor that could form anywhere in the brain Mm -hmm. and then I was gonna knock out certain genes and manipulate a certain way and see how the tumor developed but the problem was that because I didn't design it so that it's developing in the same location, a very similar location <laughs> across different mouths. I realized that once I gather all the data and even look at, you know, RNAC, you know, and stuff like that, extract RNAs to look at gene expression wise, you can't really make any interpretation because the tumor is in completely different places mm. and they could have come from different cell types. They could have come from exposed to different tumor microenvironment right and so it was just like and then my data was just like there's only a few things I could say I didn't I couldn't make the conclusion that I wanted to make and so it took me a long time to really thought things through to design it now so that the tumor model that we're using is clearly labeled so that we could distinguish tumor cells from non-tumor cells which I didn't really do before too and there it's it's being induced in a very similar location so that we could track how much it migrates when we knock out certain genes, particularly if that gene is important for tumor migration, you know? And so I think it's being a postdoc of not having that foresight and you have to learn the hard way to say, I spent three or four years on this and I'm not getting the quality of data than I thought. Oh,
3: I yeah.
1: And so it's still good to learn, but I think it would have helped if you knew something like that. So those are the things that I encounter more uh, as a postdoc.
2: So uh, uh, continuing the question. So what are the things that you learned from postdoc that's helping you right now with your lab?
1: You know, a lot of it is, uh, I think, independence. Mm-hmm. You know, being an independent person, I, I was very fortunate to join uh, Jane Johnson's lab. So she was like, she, I, I when I was wanting to do a postdoc, I want a very hands-off PI. You know, I wanted somebody to let me be the person to drive the project, to design the project, to gather the data, to interpret and just discuss and need just guidance and how to do it. And so that was my approach to my postdoc. And so Jane was really great. She was a great PI in that way where she was completely hands off. And I got to uh, say, even though my papers were just published in you know decent journals, it was everything that I did, You know, everything I came up with, I did everything I wanted to do and so i was pretty proud of that and i think that independence that ability to to write grants to write papers to design everything manage everything train even students over the summer design projects for them i think that independence and that experience was what i think really prepared me to to want to determine whether this kind of job is what i like but also you know to 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 hopefully be prepared to run my own lab when i was done with my postdoc. So I think that's the experience that helped me the most.
2: And did you always know you wanted to be a PI? I didn't really think about it,
1: right? I mean, like I was worrying more about money more than anything. But then I I, I started applying for grants, you know, like F31s. I didn't get that. I was a postdoc applying for F32. I got that. Applied for K awards, a K22, which is more for diversity, K award. And I got that too. And so I, I keep getting these fellowships that you were trying to get to. And so it just didn't let me leave. You know, <laughs> My my thing was, if these fellowships didn't work out, my shot of becoming a PI would probably be low. And so I'd probably go into you know industry, but somehow, you know, these things seems to work too. And so then I'm just like, okay, I'm going to write these grants out and try to continue to apply. And so eventually those just manifest into this position. And so things just kind of worked out. If they didn't work out, I probably would have take off and went into industry and do something else too. So, But I do enjoy being a PI though. I mean, I, I do enjoy this of having the opportunity to train and mentor younger students, especially minority students
3: mm-hmm. you know, and
1: to really help them, see them achieve, see them do a summer project and especially if they did well and they're recognized for an award and they come from your lap and you have something to do with it, you know, and then just watching people transition on and then the interaction with, you know, faculty as a whole too. I think it's, it's a great environment. You know, you get to be yourself anyway, for the most part, I'm, you know, and you get to run your lap the way that you want it to. You don't have to answer to other people. I think it's the flexibility and the mm-hmm. fact that you're, you're, you design everything that you want to do and you come to work when you want to, you know? And so I think the flexibility and the, the fact that you make an impact on, on future generations, I think that's really attractive. And I really enjoy that part of the, of the position of the faculty, being a faculty.
0: Hmm. Where do you want in five years, where do you want your lab to be going? Like, I think, I think in terms of scientific direction, like what is it you really want, want to do
1: yeah some work on glioblastoma with other we're doing collaborations with all our colleagues and so the mouse model that we developed right it's an immune competent model right it's just a wild type mice and we induce tumors to develop right in the brain
3: hmm.
1: right and so it's a great i think model for you to treat with any mechanisms or innovative methods that you come up with and so we have some collaborators where they design some of these intranasal delivery of you know, drugs to try to treat it, hopefully we'll make some segue into that. And we have studied some mechanisms that as I presented to you a little bit that shows really interesting effects on the tumor phenotype. And so hopefully we could really understand how these tumors what makes them so aggressive uh, in the next couple of years. So that's one part of it. And the other part is really to understand glial development, which is something that I'm interested in right now we're looking specifically at you know, precursor cell development. So,
0: so how do, can you explain a little more about this um, tumor formation model with the wild-type mice? Yes.
1: Essentially, what we do is, this is actually somebody that published this, but they have CRISPR plasmids, guy RNAs, that when you are introduced into cells, right, as a plasmid, these guy RNAs with Cas9 would then delete your tumor suppressor or oncogene, of interest. And so we just delete tumor suppressors in neural progenitors. We expose, we electropray these CRISPR plasmids into the brains of neonatal mouse. And so then it will slowly transform the neural progenitors, the glia progenitors in the brain to eventually develop and give rise to a tumor in the brain. And I think that's close, but I think what would happen in human brain too, that it's probably glia progenitor or neural progenitors Mm -hmm that acquire mutations over time and eventually give rise to glioblastoma.
0: So do you control then where it's forming? Like you said, you, you know, that was the first time it was just kind of all over the place. Is this now more controlled?
1: Because we inject it into the lateral ventricle and then we use a forceps, right? So depending on the, the size of the forcep, we could pull the plasmids to a specific region of the brain. And so in this case, we pull it right into the dorsal cortex oh, nice. so that when the tumor forms, it will form right in that region uh, in the cortex. And then these tumors are highly migratory. And so you can see them migrate from one side of the brain mm-hmm. to the others, too. You know, and so then if we knock out so for some of the genes that we knock out, uh, like ACL one, which is important for cell proliferation migration, we knock it out. The tumor seems to stock more and they don't really make that migration. the other side of the brain so i think it's a great model for you to really visualize uh that way i
2: i have another question going back to your you know postdocs still here because i'm a postdoc so i am biased so when you are doing that process you were saying you had you have four kids so how did you balance that i mean keeping the finances aside you know like because Asking because, you know, I'm not even married and with my fiance, I can't even do this. Sometimes I'm just like, leave me alone. Let me do my work. But then with a big family, so how do you have the, how did you have the mental energy to prioritize and, you know, like divide and conquer basically? How did you do it?
1: Good job. That's what I, I can tell you. I think that, I think that when you have so many things you have to tend to, something has to suffer. You know, you can't, you can't be perfect. And I think I realized that when I was doing it, because you get your juggle so much. A lot of the credit goes to my, my partner, you know, my wife, she's, she's one of, she's the main person that takes care of her kids when I do this. But basically, I go whenever I have time to go into the lab, right? It could be late at night on the weekend. And you just do the very best that you can, whatever you're giving But I think when you have so many things to do, you force yourself to think like when we talk about financial a little bit earlier, when you only have a limited amount of time or resource, you force yourself to be more efficient, Mm -hmm. you know, and so then you, you take your time and you do things the right way, hopefully the first couple of times and not waste so much time. Yeah. And so I would say, you know, regardless of the situation, nothing's going to be perfect. You're just going to have to live with the results. You just have to pick what's a priority for you. Mm-hmm. And so for me, for me, I just didn't want at the end of the day to feel like I didn't, I wasn't able to progress to pursue the career that I want because I didn't do a good job. I really wanted to try to do the best job that I could possibly do to see if, you know, in a way to see if you have the, you know, the, the ability to do it, to actually succeed. And I think, and, you know, regardless of situation, I think you have to put yourself in that place to see if, okay, and I really did everything the best that I could. Yeah. Was that good enough? You know, if it's good enough, and you think it could take you further, then I think it will motivate you to continue to want to work harder to to, to push yourself toward that career path. Or if it's really not for you, then you say, you know, this is not for me better go to industry or somewhere else so what about you right now gopi what what do you think and what do you want to do for you i don't as know a
2: <laughs> i don't know right now quite frankly i'm enjoying this journey i'm because i'm giving I, I mean i've been given so much resources here and it's basically do whatever you want to do and i'm given so much freedom to and it's such a such a well no, I feel so nourished. You know what I mean? There are like so many things to satisfy my intellectual need here. So I want to put my 100%. I mean, not I want to, I am trying to put my 100% here. But then then comes when you start your family, when things go towards that that side. It's just like, uh, I'm forced to think right now. Like I'm getting married soon and we want a kid and all that. So it's like, I'm just thinking, how does all this fit into my goals? You know, like, how do I, like, weave my goals with my family so we can all, like, win together? You know, I mean, now, I mean, before this, I was single, so it was just about me. I was not answerable to anyone or anything. I could do whatever I want to do. But right now, as science is my priority, other things are priority too, right? It's not just about science anymore. And that was a very new sensation to me. That was a very new realization even. So I had to like ask everyone, how did, how are you doing it? How did you do it? Like, can I learn something? You know what I mean? It's always about asking around and learning. And it's it's and it's not I, I also think it's not just you learn something and it's 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 done. No, I think it's it's like learning something every day. You know, it's, it's like every day, it's it's a constant struggle. It's every day there is something coming up and every day you had to deal with. It. There is no, I feel like there are no rule books for this. So you just do, as you were saying, the best you can and you hope things turn out to be well, you know, yeah. But then it feels great to know that I'm just not alone in this boat. I'm like, yay, if we are going down, we are all going down.
0: Yeah, I. so I said earlier, you know, things that if money is the solution, it's an easy problem yeah i would say time for me for me personally is the most valuable thing Mm -hmm. right wasting time is i would much rather throw way more money than i need to at something if it saves time and and it's because my time is limited you know family free time personal time thinking time like deep thinking time it's just so valuable. Like I, I can't afford to do an experiment multiple times, not financially, just time wise. I don't want to do something three times just because it didn't. Like mm. I rushed it, or, or you know, it. To me, that's where I get frustrated. Yeah. Is if it's if I feel like I'm wasting time, right? And I so. I think so I remember it was a few weeks ago Gord Fischel tweeted he's been doing these like (laughs) meta tweets and the thing he said was the the people that have constraints often are the best people they're the constrained people that means they have time limits because of family or because of you know medical things or whatever it is if they're constrained they're often more focused and they're they're not interested in wasting time. And I think Gopu, you and I have mentioned this, like when you have free time, you're just kind of like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to try this. And it's not, your effort is almost half-assed, right? Because you're like, if I don't, if it messes up, I'll just do it again, right? But when you don't have that option, I'm like, I've got this deadline. I've got to do X, Y, and Z. I've got enough time to get this data in before this grants due, right? But I can only do it once. (laughs) Uh. like it's it's crunch time and you you know you're so focused and you're basically putting on your A game i guess so
2: I mean, this is why when, you know, all these, because we basically live with all this on a daily basis, right? And with all this, when I go to, when I go see these Marvel and DC movies and see scientists there doing biology and chemistry and physics and astrobiology at the same time in one hour, I'm like, dude, come on, (laughs) I get it, but mm, are you sure? yeah the, wait, Disease
1: within hours right you can't cure cancer or anything
2: and not just that data not to be <laughs> superheroes too just so like... who's the best marvel scientist hulk
0: okay
2: he's apparently he has, them. apparently hulk has seven phds can you <laughs> 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 yeah that's all i have to say <laughs> Not just one or two, seven.
1: It's all movie magic that they just right? work, right? It just no. doesn't, they actually haven't, like I haven't seen a movie where they actually do science. Like that's that's really how science is. That's really how scientists struggles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't really seen a movie like that.
2: Yet.
0: Oh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to watch that movie. <laughs>
2: Because that's the thing, you know, when uh, we were talking about these high school interns, right, they come into labs thinking that that is the science you get like, you can find a new planet, you can turn into like all these things, like all these quantum physics, you know, like now people are throwing quantum in front of everything. (laughs) So they see all that and they come to our lab and see how much work goes inside, even an immunostaining and mm. they are like, oh, so it takes all this effort. I thought it was easier. It was like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. No. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I've seen that where. Really?
0: Yeah, yeah. Even in, the, in, in all students that I've been working with, undergraduates, it's, I don't know if it's anything new. I mean, it's probably always been that way, but they're kind of disillusioned. And there's a select few of them once they get in and they start doing it and they struggle with it, mm. but they'll put their head down, push through, figure it out and get to the end a lot of them don't they'll, they'll get to a point and then just be like i'm done Yeah. in the middle of, in the middle of something you're just like i'm never showing up again to the lab you know oh. for whatever reason and you're just like what? i don't understand like it's just something that's not in my
1: dna to be like,
0: Wait, wait wait you got to you still got to put Dappy on that thing. So <laughs> like,
1: don't stop. <laughs> all, all of these reminds me of, you know, that we should have these, you know, that we should reach out. Like, you know, when we're scientists like this, we should also take maybe a day or two, once a year to really go to the communities and really talk about science with you know, the general public. I think we don't do that enough. And we're not. And so we're, we're not letting the community or the public know how important science is and how real it is, too. You know, and so uh, I, I think we may need to be more active in that aspect uh, in terms of society, science and society, so that we get the society to be more appreciative of science, how hard it is, too, mm-hmm. but also how powerful it is and how it actually works and doesn't work. So that proper funding hopefully, will come into play sometime in the future.
0: So, so are you saying because Hulk has seven PhDs, <laughs> NIH won't raise the cap for an R01? because it just magically happens <laughs> we get our tony starks in here that can can do anything
1: help. with those phds though I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so. Look, publish where are they you know
2: <laughs> right that's oh, true well he's, he's hulk he doesn't have to publish can you i mean that's the thing it's like people i don't think people realize how much work goes inside even some publishing a paper in impact factor three or four it's like two simply three four years of a work and to get into big journals like nature cell science of course you need data but then Mm -hmm. more and more I feel like contacts are also important you know I mean it's only a naive people naive person would think with real good science you can get into cell nature. I mean yeah of course but then come on we are not living in an ideal world right i mean contacts helps a lot
0: i think there was this uh one of the papers i, I did the math like like you're saying how much it costs to actually section a mouse brain I, I i i count i counted how much it costs for one figure in a paper that we did and it was a hundred thousand dollars what and that includes there's just like figure one and that include all of the mice that went into it the, the salaries that went into it the time because the, like the time it took to do the whole experiment yeah right which would have been like i don't know eight to ten months right? the reagents the cost of the facilities and it was like just one figure was like 100 grand
1: and i believe that too for some of the things that we're doing because it takes so long Uh, The the hope is that hopefully you can use it to stretch to get multiple papers out of that money that you Um, you spend. So I don't know. It's really hard to calculate precisely how much like directly. I mean, if you like like you're talking about, if it's like I need this mouse colony to have this figure, but I'm using it for a bunch of other things, too. Right. So it's really hard to say what the cost, but it definitely isn't cheap. Like, yeah, yeah. I keep trying to stretch that to some of the students and research technicians too. I mean, I always go, you know, you, you're here to play science, really, you know, you could publish your papers in a really nice journals and you can make a name for yourself, right? And so you can actually do really good science and it's really expensive. So you have to appreciate that. You should not, you should take it seriously to some extent. I mean, you should have fun too, but you got to realize how 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 not cheap it is, like mm-hmm. and you know, how much money goes into in time. And so to really appreciate and try to try to get something out of it, whatever that may be, you know, of everything that you do in science.
0: Yeah, that, that may be a double edged sword, right? Because if we make the if the public knows how much a lot of the science costs, right, it may help improve funding because like, well, we need to raise the cap. But it may also be like, oh, sounds like you're wasting a lot of money. I know. I won't be surprised. So, I mean, some of this money is mean, ridiculous. Like, some of the stuff you have to buy. It's so. I mean, we you pay. I I can list stories of how money is wasted just on purchasing through specific vendors or
2: or just buying antibodies that don't work.
0: Yeah. No, that's, that's part of the process. Of that
2: though, but... yeah. Five hundred dollars. Three hundred. Yeah, antibodies, antibodies
0: is a weird example because. I had some funding to buy a couple of antibodies. It was just like little student funding to buy one antibody. And this was like six months ago. And then in that six months, it doubled in price. It went from like $350 to $700. And I was like, what? That's, now I can't even, now this grant won't even support it. <laughs> it's like 500 bucks. And then I can't even do that. <laughs> so it's It's bizarre,
2: but. And yeah, so so uh, and the thing is, it's only if the antibody works.
3: Yeah, yeah. It doesn't
2: then yeah, yep. yeah,
0: yeah. Let alone having to like test five of the same GFAP antibodies just to make sure you've got one that looks like you want it to look.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oof. So how are you, doing these days? How are How are you doing? How is your lab? How are students? How How is things?
1: Part, I think things are running, you know. Um, I think I'm getting enough people to work on. My lab is divided into several research directions. One is the brain tumor, one is just GLIA, and the other is looking at how alcohol affects GLIA. Oh,
3: that's funny. So I'm
1: able to get at least one person to be in charge of each of these research programs and then if can get one or two more people to help. I think that will be great. So I'm spreading myself a little thin, but at least everybody's doing that before I was doing some of it myself. And so overall, you know, I'm pretty happy. Hopefully, we can grow some more. but so, The lab is going well.
2: So with the dev- uh, glial development that you were talking about, so are you going to look at organoids too?
1: Yeah, I, I actually, we're we're mostly using mouse brain because mm-hmm. we're interested in their their difference and their migration into gray oh, okay. matter and white matter. And so organoids are great. I think we actually have some. You know, uh, some of my colleagues are doing that, but for now, I'm focusing mostly on the mouse brain. For
2: now, I see. Okay. I'm, I mean, I'm an I'm a through and through in weaver person as well. If I look at a cell culture plate, that gets contaminated, so <laughs> you know, not for me.
1: Cell culture experience at all is, is one of those things that I barely got to do, and so I don't really know how to do it. And then the questions that I want to ask, like I said this gray matter, white matter thing, you know, trying to understand that difference. And, you know, when you culture, especially glial cells in culture, they just, you kind of homogenize it. Mm. And so it's it's hard to address these heterogeneity questions. Uh, And so for now, the, I think when it comes to maybe the right question, I think, you know, organoids or cell culture would be a really great way to address that.
0: Mm. Especially if we could grow them for gray and white matter, distinction we don't have that we don't have that control
1: yet like guidance molecules to get the axons to grow in one single path or a single projection like you see in vivo
2: but then it's also crazy to think how the like our field is growing exponentially like i started my phd when 2015 2016 then I never saw any papers about organoids. Then it was about co-culture and uh 3D culture maximum. Then we had data from microarray and RNA seq. Now people are doing single cell spatial transcriptomics, organoid. It's just assembloids even. It's just it's just mm-hmm. it's just oh my god, it's it's crazy. It's a good, but then it's it's very hard to like keep on track of these things, you know? It's just like what do I focus on? This, 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 there's so many new things. And not just that, if I, I have to learn all these things too in a short while, it's just oh, I need I do need those seven PhDs. Somebody should give me seven <laughs> PhDs just for this.
0: Uh, can you imagine? Going getting seven PhDs.
2: Oh, oh even one was stretch. <laughs> even one, my God, it is stretch. Yeah. Well, that that was nice. Oh yeah. Just to divert you guys from completely, how, did you both see the new movie Nope? Mm. That Jordan Peele movie Nope. Oh, it's a. Fun oh, movie. too, you liked it? Right. Did you, say, did you see that?
1: I I I. I... Some parts were good, but I didn't like the whole movie. You
2: didn't? All. I no, loved no. the movie. You loved it? I loved it. It was <laughs> crazy. It was funky. I loved it.
1: Yeah. No, I think, I think he has too many hidden stuff in there. Like, I'm just watching a movie straight up for a movie, too. You know? And so this is not going to be another thing, right? This review of the movie? How are we going to put this in? The-
0: <laughs> we're going to tag Jordan Peele on it. I know. We should. <laughs>
1: The director, you know, and there, there's some things that are cool. But I just, I'm just like, like for for me for the, for that part of the movie, just like, okay, this thing is happening. Why isn't the government not knowing this thing? Or why didn't they tell anybody? Like because they're gonna didn't. fight it.
0: Then we'll have to it's, put a spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's, it. It, it's, it's just outside of LA. I'm pretty sure somebody would have known yeah. if it's like the middle of like Europe or Asia, and no one. is a tiny small town. or I don't know. Like the setting just didn't work for me. Like they went, they have fries. Man, come on.
2: No, I with <laughs> the and, <so, laughs>
1: and so I'm just like, somebody else would have known this thing. And and if you knew, would you fight it? Like you gotta like I don't know. I just didn't feel like that. And then I don't know. The, I think the beginning it took too long to get to that yeah. to 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 the creature. Right. It, it was a little slow at the beginning. Sorry, Zane, did you want to go watch it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm usually, you know, it it takes me so long to watch movies. I'll probably forget everything you've said about it.
1: It's good. Some parts are really good. But like I said, those things like, 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 get out, right? Get out. Like, it was great and everything. You know, how scary a white girl does that to you. I I get all of that. If you're a black guy. But then what? You can't chop people's head off their brain and put another brain in. And they still it. It's just yeah. not possible.
2: The, the, the funny thing was in that surgery scene, they had candles everywhere. I'm like, what? Candles in your operation theater? Sure, why not?
1: So, I explain how those people survived that. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not possible for you to take out someone's, you know, their 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 forebrain on top of somebody's brainstem. He just
2: you had seven PhDs
1: it doesn't work so for me that that i mean like overall the movie was great but then that part like that science fiction part didn't work and mm-hmm. i think to me this science fiction part didn't work for me too like I mean, the social commentary and everything was great but the science fiction part didn't work and so that i that's mean, the part I'm when me. i
2: see science fiction movies these days i turn off my scientist part i just watch it for what it is you <laughs> do know?
1: that man you gotta tell me how you do that because i can't do that <laughs> <laughs> just like I can't turn it off. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I mean, it's just, you can't overcome it. So you know?
0: I'm gonna guess. To you grew up in one of two camps. You're either Star Trek or Star Wars. You're probably more of a Star Trek fan than a Star Wars fan.
1: I'm more Star Trek than Star Wars. Yeah, I haven't seen either.
0: <laughs> you love Star Wars then. Six
1: days. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: And for a long term, I thought Star Trek is Star Wars. Yeah. I thought it the same thing.
0: I Most have... people that like the hard science fiction, that's more of a Star Trek.
2: Mm-hmm. Star Wars I have a question crazy. for both of you. What is the bad science fiction movie that you've seen? Like, it's like, nope. Not doing that. Nope. No what's what? what did you say? What, what's the worst science movie you've seen? You saw that I'm like, oh god, this is crap. Oh god. I've seen
0: a
1: lot. I don't I don't watch crappy movies. You know, like what, Ty, what Zay was saying, I don't have time to waste. And so if like, there's any review or anything that this is crap or it's not a really good movie, then I just don't waste my time watching it. So I tend to watch things that are, you know, they have something to say, something interesting to say. And mm-hmm. so I don't remember the last time. I don't think I, I have avoided watching bad movies for a long time now. So.
2: There was a there was a mo- there was a th- Tamil movie. So that movie oh, it's just so it's so stupid. It's 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 so it's so bad. It's so good, you know. It's one of those movies. It's like so yeah. Indian is,
1: science science fiction movie, right?
2: It's it's so bad. It's wonderful. So the plot is there is this bioterrorist like leaving some anthrax virus or anywhere, and this lady who's a biotechnology PhD student finds a guy who's like a descendant many generations, descendant of some ancient Kung Fu guy. So to fight this bioterrorist, what she does is she's like, oh, you have the same genes as your ancestors. If we could turn on those genes, you will have the same Kung Fu powers. So what she does is she puts him in a huge aquarium with all electrodes and everything attached. And she he's just like floating there and she turns the gene on and all of a sudden he knows how to do karate and everything and he fights off the terrorists. and the funniest thing was there was a scene where she takes her blood his blood and looks into it like a, like the basic ass light microscope and she sees all the DNA dividing and everything and she's like oh I see the gene you have the same gene I was like wow <laughs> what people think science is no
1: secrecy needed <laughs> right <laughs>
2: Sounds like a good I
0: would watch that one.
2: Right? <laughs> That's the thing it's, it's so, so bad, bad. it's, it's good. wonderful. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, I I've I've always been into like the 1950s sci-fi mm-hmm. genre, like the old classic. So there's just hundreds of terrible sci-fi movies. <laughs> they're I mean they're inappropriate now. There's a lot of like, <laughs> really wrong like don't age well obviously because it's the 50s but um so, i mean the some of it, it's almost like they're trying to make it bad so it's very campy so i've seen yeah. a lot
2: mm-hmm. so, oh well okay yeah. that sounds good well thanks too thank you so much dude it was nice meeting you here i hope we meet in a conference also very soon yeah uh, you both and thank you for having me on okay wonderful thank you so much And good luck.
3: Thank you.